to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty Hand And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. Well, I think we've all experienced in our lives the power of stories. A good story is able to get hold of our imagination and shape our view of the world, our sense of self and our our purpose and, and destiny. If a good story captures your imagination, it can control your whole life. And I think that's one of the reasons why the the greatest nations and empires and and movements throughout history have relied so much on the telling of stories. That's why everyone today works to control the narrative, as as we say. The story, right? Especially, Especially if it has to do with a people's basic origins has the ability to to shape a people's sense of identity and destiny. This is what the legendary poem uh, of of Virgil, uh, Aeneid, did for the Romans under Caesar Augustus. There was this profound 
uh, narrative that accompanied the rise of the empire by telling this foundational epic, Virgil gave the people of Rome a sense of identity and destiny. It's the same for the story of Muhammad for Islam. Going, doing history with, with Karis this year and for about a, a month or so we've been studying the history of Islam and, and we've been learning how foundational Muhammad's story and life are for, uh, for the Islamic faith. We could, we could give example after example of this. Um, we see the battle raging in our own country today to control the national narrative. You may have heard of the, the 1619 Project, which is a controversial initiative uh, by the New York Times Magazine to ref- reframe, really, the, the American story. Instead of beginning with the Declaration of Independence, in uh, 1776, the 1619 Project argues that <clears throat> America's true founding began in August of 1619 when the first uh, ship with slaves made its way to the New World. You see, the, the way, though, that st- stories capture our imagination and, and shape our lives raises a question for us. And that is, what is your story? What, what story are you telling yourself? What is the foundational narrative that you, you live out of? Friends, our, our history matters. Our moral imaginations are always formed and informed by the stories we tell ourselves. And this is reflected in in our passage today here in Deuteronomy. This is why Moses rehearses the story of how God's people, how how God brought them out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. And if you notice the language, God brought them out to bring them in. And Moses will say this in one form or another again and again. This was Israel's foundational narrative. God brought them out to bring them in. And their story anticipates the greatest story ever told. As Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of Sins. He, he delivered us and transferred us. He brought us out to bring us in. He brought us out of darkness to bring us into the kingdom of his son. That is our story in Christ. And it is the story that shapes how we live. And so I want to consider... The passage before us today in two parts. So just two two basic ideas to give us frame of of reference. First, the the danger of forgetting. And secondly, the drama behind the demands. The danger of forgetting, we see in verses 10 through 19. 
the drama behind the demands in verses 20 through 25. So let's begin with the first, the danger of forgetting. The, the Bible repeatedly warns us that it is never easier to forget God than when he has richly blessed us. This is a theme running throughout the book of Deuteronomy. We've already seen it before, and it's here in verses 10 through 12. Have a look at those verses again with me. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you didn't dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, material affluence has a way of going hand in hand with spiritual amnesia. Having plenty can so easily numb us to our need and our dependence upon God. We, it can make us like Pharaoh who asked the question, who, who is the Lord? And so as Moses anticipates all of the good gifts that Israel will enjoy in the promised land, all of these things that they didn't earn, all of these things that they didn't build, all of these things that they didn't produce, he warns them, don't forget the giver. That's a timely reminder around Thanksgiving season, isn't it? But this is what so often happens. We, we tend to be forgetful and proud and ungrateful precisely when we should be most mindful and, and humble and, and grateful instead of being ungrateful for God's grace and, and generosity. But, but isn't it easy for us? I know that I find this to be true for myself, it's so easy, you know, for example, if, if I'm in good health, to, uh, to credit it to, you know, what I'm eating, or how I'm exercising, or if, if we enjoy a strong marriage, isn't it easy to credit uh, our efforts, and our strategies, and our marriage, or if, <clears throat> if, we're in, if we're in a good financial situation, it's easy to credit our financial planning and our hard work, or if we have obedient kids to credit our parenting strategies, if we don't fall into some kind of scandalous sin, aren't we tempted to credit it to our superior moral vision? It's just a, it's just a reflex of our sinful hearts to take credit and forget where good things really come from. It's always sobering to ask ourselves Paul's searching question, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? You see, it's, it's, it's easy to grow full and forgetful because material affluence produces spiritual amnesia. And the next thing we need to see in this passage is that spiritual amnesia exposes us to other dangers as well. As Moses goes on to warn the Israelites in verses 14 and 15, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are, are, who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. 
lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. I wonder if you see the connection here. When we forget our God, we inevitably fill the void with other gods and other stories for sources of self, sources of security, sources of satisfaction. And so the dangers compound in this way. Material affluence can easily lead to spiritual amnesia. Spiritual amnesia can lead to idolatry. And idolatry can lead to outright apostasy ending in judgment. You see, decadence is deadly. And many people are recognizing the fact that we live in a decadent culture. In verses 16 through 19, Moses continues to to warn the people, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God. Now notice here that the warning against forgetting not only talks about the danger of forgetting God and his generosity and his goodness and his, his grace, the warning is also contains a reminder to not forget a key moment and episode of failure on God's, the part of God's people. Isn't that interesting? What, what are we called to remember here? We're not only called to remember the good things God has done and will do for them, we're also called to remember the bad things that God's people have done, the evil that we've done. And we see this in verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And he's referring to that incident that's recorded in greater detail in Exodus chapter 17, when the people not only quarreled and complained because they were experiencing a shortage of, of water in the wilderness, but what they essentially did is they rewrote the story of salvation. They rewrote the story of salvation to be a story of privation. That's what God's people did when they tested him at Massa. They rewrote the story of the history of salvation, distorting it into a story of privation. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to die? Why did you bring us out for our children and our livestock to die? When in reality, God had brought them out of a place of suffering and bondage to bring them into a good and spacious land overflowing with milk and honey. Here we see that it's not only affluence, but also affliction that can lead God's people to forgetfulness. The people were thirsty and they responded by rewriting or distorting their own history. We, we sometimes do the same thing, don't we? we? We're very capable of this. When we're experiencing some difficulty or some pressing challenge in our lives, we can begin to fixate on what we don't have, what we wish we had. Or we can begin to fixate on what we do have and we wish we did not have. When we experience trials of various kinds, we can, we can allow what Paul calls light and momentary afflictions to 
eclipse the eternal weight of glory. I heard the story of a pastor, I'm not bold enough to do this, I guess, but a pastor who, uh, during a sermon, uh, brought a big white poster board, you know, those big poster boards, and uh, in the middle of the poster board, he drew a, a little black circle with a sharpie, and he asked people, what do you see? And a bunch of folks in the congregation said, a blot. (laughs) And he pointed out to them that that really illustrates uh, what we so often do. So often we we focus on the tiny blot and we miss the widespread mercies. That's our vision sometimes. And really it's the vision of humanity going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Think about Satan's strategy for a moment back in the Garden of Eden. He, he, what did he do? He, he attempted to rewrite history. He attempted to distort reality with a question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You see, you see what he's doing? You see what he's doing with the question? The question makes God seem stingy and ungiving when the, the truth of the matter is, we've just read in Genesis chapter 1, after creating the man and the woman, God blessed them. And he placed them in this garden of abundance and said, everything is yours to cultivate and to enjoy and to expand. There's just one exception. There's one tree that is off limits. But Satan succeeded in his, his attempt to make God the creator of all things seem closed-fisted. And this is what Satan does, and it's what we sometimes do in our sinfulness. We emphasize God's prohibition over his abundant provision. We, we put God to the test by saying things like, you must not love me unless you give me this. You must not care about me, God, unless you take this away. This is how Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Think about it. He, he tempted Jesus incarnate to put his father to the test. In Luke chapter 4, we're we're told Satan took Jesus, one of his temptations, he took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's quoting, quoting scripture there. And that's the last temptation in, in Luke's account of Jesus' encounter with Satan in the wilderness, and in many ways, it's, it's, it's the greatest temptation because it is the temptation to try and make God love us on our own terms. To, to compel God to love us in a way that he has not revealed. It's saying, if you love me, God, I've got to be able to throw myself off the temple and you're going to catch me. I get to define 
how you love me. If you love me, then you'll do this. If you love me, you'll take away this. This is such a real temptation, isn't it? To tell God, unless you love me like this, then you must not really love me. Unless you do this for me, you must not really care about me. Satan, Satan knew that Jesus wanted nothing more than for all to see the divine glory that he enjoyed with the Father before the world began. Just consider this temptation alongside of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 when he asks that those who are with him would see his glory. And Satan, what's he doing? He's tempting Jesus to snatch and grab a spectacular display of glory that was also painless and conveniently bypassed the cross. And we're so tempted to tell God, you, you, don't really, you don't really love me unless you love me in a way that's painless, in a way that conveniently bypasses the call to pick up our cross and to follow Jesus for the joy that is set before us. But there's good news in the story because Jesus, Jesus responded to Satan's temptation by quoting from this very text. From Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. He said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What what are we meant to, to learn from this? Well, unlike Israel, who tested God at Massa, and unlike us, who have tested God in our own ways, Jesus trusted God. He entrusted himself into the hands of his heavenly father. We we need to remember the good things that God has done for us. And this passage is also reminding us that we need to remember the bad things that we have done. Both are and can be instructive for the life of faith. We need to, as it were, remember the own masses of our personal lives. And as as Jesus shows us, we shouldn't forget the episodes in the history of God's people where we failed miserably. Now, why would that be? Not so we can wallow around in, in guilt, not so we can beat ourselves up, but because when we don't remember these episodes are part of our own story, then we quickly forget our need for grace and we can become puffed up and, and proud, right? If we, if we don't remember, for example, if we don't remember that Abraham slept with his own servant, if we don't remember that King David was an adulterer and a murderer, if, if we don't remember that many of the heroes of our faith in Scripture and throughout history were so profoundly flawed, Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, owning slaves, Martin Luther, writing some of the most anti-Semitic things imaginable. We could go on and on with a list of these things. We could think about we could think about the people of God in a corporate way, for example, Southern Presbyterianism, which the PCA emerged, did not do a good job handling the race issue and sometimes actively promoted segregation during the civil rights movement. When we don't remember these stories as part of our own history, 
we can quickly forget how badly we are debtors to grace. And we may foolishly begin to think that God's blessing is because we're somehow better or more righteous than other people. We'll come back to that idea later on in the book of Deuteronomy. But this passage here is teaching us that we do need to be well acquainted with the stories of our failures if we are going to be a humble and dependent people on the Lord our God. That brings us to the second part of the passage that I want to look at for a few moments. That's the drama behind the the demands. Moses, he not only warns us about the danger of forgetting, he also provides us with a summary of the story that we need to remember and that we need to tell to our children. Have a look at this summary of the gospel according to Moses in verses 20 through 25. Notice, as we read it again, notice how it reads kind of like a catechism. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. Let me stop there. Okay, here we discover that when a, when a covenant child came to ask a question about the meaning of all of the rules, all of the commandments, all of the statutes that were given to Israel. Make it, make it a contemporary question. When one of our kids asks the question, hey mom, hey dad, why, why are we different from our neighbors? Why do we do things differently than our neighbors? How is the parent to answer that kind of question. The basic question is, what is the meaning of the law? Why did God give it to us? I I think the answer might surprise some of us. It's perhaps not what we expect. The answer to the question, what is the meaning of the law, is God's redeeming grace. You see that? Why do we have all of these statutes and rules? And the answer that the parent was to give to their child is because God brought us out to bring us in. To take us to a land where he would dwell in our midst as our God. And he's given us these laws, these statutes, and these rules that we might know how to walk before him. Another way of putting it is that the, 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 the salvation of God is the reason for the standards of God. The the drama is really what drives the demands. The, The story of Israel's redemption stands behind the giving of the standards. So when a child asks why obedience to God's law is necessary, see, the reply is not simply, well, because God says so. Well, that's reason sufficient in and of itself, but it's not limited to that. The answer is, the drama behind the demands. 
our, our pedagogy, our, our teaching of our children has to tell a story. It is not simply the communication of facts and information. It is the relaying of redemptive history. It has to tell a drama. There, there is a reason why, as human beings, I think, that we are drawn, you know, as, as kids, we, we love C.S. Lewis and Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, don't we? It's because it provides a, a drama to a Christian view of the world that, yes, evil is real, but Aslan is, is on the move, and we live in an enchanted world, and there is more to our existence than meets the eye. And friends, that's not just what our kids need. It's, it's, it's what we all need. The divine demands are incomprehensible apart from the divine drama. I mean, how, how can you understand the call to take up your cross, to die to yourself, to take up your cross and follow after Jesus apart from the history of the death and resurrection of the Son of God? As it's, as it's underlying logic. You see, God's standards don't make full sense apart from God's story. It is the story of salvation that summons us to keep the standards. And it's only within the context of the divine drama that we discover the deepest and truest meaning of the divine law. So the gospel itself <clears throat> invites us to make our story, well, let me put it the other way. <laughs> the gospel invites us to make Jesus' story our story. Think about, for a moment, think about how Paul teaches Christians to deal with remaining sin in their lives in a passage like Romans chapter 6. Before getting to the imperative, the command, let sin no longer reign over you, he reminds them that the story of Jesus' death and resurrection is now their story in union with him. The death that Jesus died to sin, you died to sin. The resurrection of Jesus is your resurrection to walk in newness of life. And the imperative follows that reality. There's been a lot of talk in recent theology of, of how the indicative drives the imperative. Right? The indicative, the reality of what God in his grace has done in Jesus Christ leads to the imperatives, the commands of the Christian life. It's another way of saying that the drama drives the demands. And this is the very pattern we see at work here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The story of redemption is what stands behind the statutes. And another thing I want you to notice here is the way that the children of Israel are enfolded into this story. Okay, God's saving love is what stands behind the law and the children are included in the true life and liberty that comes from within God's prescribed limits which turn out to be far more broad and spacious and far more free than any freedom we might try to construct for ourselves. But did you notice, <clears throat> did you notice that the personal pronoun 
that the parent is instructed to use in answer to the question. Notice the son asks, he uses the language of you, and then the father answers not in the language of I and your fathers, he uses the language of we. He says, we were slaves. We were among those brought out. The children are enfolded into the story of redemption. And friends, it's, it's, a, it's a, an opportunity for us to recognize at the very least that there's a big difference between knowing the story and seeing yourself, seeing your life enfolded into that story. Are you living inside the story of God's redeeming work or are you living outside of it? As Christians, we're called to live out of the greatest story ever told. We are not told to live out of our own small stories of of successes and failures. We're not told to live our lives out of the 24-hour news cycle. We're not told to live out our lives by the the, the passing trends and fads of of our culture or the national narratives that compete across the globe for temporary power and earthly dominion. We are called to live out of the biggest story of God, who, although he existed in eternity in perfect blessedness, perfect happiness, perfect fullness and joy and delight, he has nonetheless taken decisive action in the flesh of Jesus Christ to deliver us from the domain of darkness and to transfer us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. That's that's our story in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the drama that drives how we live. It's the story that we need to remember, and it's the story that we need to tell to our children. He brought us out to bring us in. He delivered us and transferred us. He delivered us out of darkness and brought us into light, into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. One other thing I want to mention here. Understanding this transfer The nature of this transfer is absolutely critical for our understanding of how the gospel works, of what it means to be redeemed, what it means to be saved by God. God's goal, you see, is not simply to free us from something and then leave us to ourselves. No, the goal of redemption is to bring us out in order to bring us into something even better. He brings us to something better. But we have to recognize that as we hear that message, that we live in a culture that looks to get out and be free from any and all kinds of authority. We, we don't want anybody giving us rules or statutes or commands to live by, do we? You know, we all feel that tendency in our hearts. Nobody is going to tell me what to do. No one's going to tell me how to live my life. Now, to a certain degree, I think that that response is is understandable 
because so many authorities in this world are a whole lot more like Pharaoh than the God of Israel. We've been trained by the abuses of power and authority by tyrannical, selfish, proud, and frankly petty masters to resist authority. But we can't go on getting out of things forever, can we? After all, isn't the whole point of getting out of something to get, to get into something to get into something better? God brought us out of slavery to bring us into his joyful service. But you see, if we refuse his, his good rules and statutes and commands, then we are left, we are left wandering in the wilderness of our own willfulness. And friends, that's a, that's a bad place to be. As we, as we wrap up here, just notice how Moses, again, summarizes the story in verse 23. Something I've quoted a few times now. But very simply and succinctly, God brought us out to bring us in. In other words, it is because we have been liberated from the power of sin and death that we transfer our allegiance to the one who has set us free. That's the point of the passage here. The point of redemption is not that, well, God has done something nice for us, so now we're obligated to do something nice for him in return. The point is that we were there. We were there. We were dwelling in darkness. We were in chains. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. But God made us alive. And he set us free. And, and, and now we have a new master. And he is our life. And it is right. And it is good if we are careful to do all that he has commanded us. And so this passage in a nutshell, brothers and sisters, is urging us, do not forget God. Do not forget his generosity and goodness and grace to you. And to remember the drama that drives the demands of the Christian life. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we, we thank you for the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus, that you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and you've transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son. Father, we confess how prone we are to forget, to forget you and to forget all that you have done for us. So would you please keep us grounded in the gospel? And remind us fresh each and every day of your grace to us. And we pray that as a, as a people we would always remember the story of redemption that undergirds how you now call us to live as a people who have been set free to live for you. Where true freedom is found and true freedom is enjoyed. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.